everyone. Welcome to Tennis with an Accent, produced by our friends at Red Circle. This is Saki hosting the show, and one of our very own uh, and a familiar contributor, Tennis with an Accent, Priyana Fos, uh, is back to discuss the Asian swing and what's been happening in the tennis world. So I expect this to be a very lively conversation. Hey, Bri, how are you? I'm doing great, Sakib. Thanks for having me back on again. Yeah, anytime. Uh, whenever you've been, uh, you bring a lot of uh, uh, lot of hits to the podcast, and uh, you have your own fan following. So anytime you add to the accents, it's uh, making the podcast richer. So on that note, uh, what do you want to talk about? There's plenty going on in both tours. Uh, you were at the U.S. Open not too long ago. Where do you want to start this? <laughs> yes, I was at the U.S. Open recently. Um, let's start with the ATP then. How about that? Sure. Uh, what do you have in mind? I mean, uh, Djokovic was a pretty invincible mode last week in Tokyo. Uh, Dominic team, uh, as Matt Semek said, uh, proved his hardcore credentials. Uh, he's clearly over those flu-like symptoms that plagued him since Montreal. So he was in the winner's circle over Stefano Tsitsipas. Uh, who reached his first final in quite some time after the five-set loss to Wawrinka. He's had a mixed bag of results. So where do you want to start with? There's plenty to talk about. <laughs> um, let's start in Beijing, where we actually got a semi-final lineup of kind of the next gen of the older guys. Yeah, um, was... how, how did you see that going? I mean, I've, I've been honestly very busy at work in the Asian swing. If you're on the East Coast, I'm sure same applies for you. Time zone-wise, after U.S. Open, even though we claim to be, you know, we are tennis fans who watch tennis all year long, uh, that becomes a pretty tough uh, swing to uh, keep track of. I, I woke up at night, of course, checked some scores, had a sip of water, and then go back to bed. But I didn't watch much tennis till the weekend. But I did follow that uh, team. Uh, was back in the winner's circle, and he uh, was down to Hachinov when I last saw the score. I think it was four in the morning. Uh, he was down 6-2, and then they were in the breaker. And then I woke up next morning, I saw he won that match. And uh, then he had a quite a good final against Sitsipas. So, yeah, he's someone who I spoke with, I think, Ravi Uba, that I was very interested in how teams fall shapes up because coming into the U.S. Open he looked like he was going to be one of the few contenders outside of those big three names because uh, he's not very young, but at the same time, he's not as old as those guys. So he's the leader of the brigade. He's played two finals at best of five, which is Roland Garros, but it's a clear indication that he knows how to win matches. Then he beat Roger Federer to win uh, his first Masters 1000 Indian Wells when most of us thought the first breakthrough is going to come on clay courts. So building upon the quarterfinal loss to Nadal in last year's U.S. Open, which was the match of the year by many, or at least the candidate for match of the year, he goes and wins Indian Wells, beating Federer, you know, who's pretty tough in the desert himself. And now, not two good results in Wimbledon U.S. Open, but then he comes back and wins this tournament. And uh, and part of your uh, question with those four guys, yeah, I mean, uh, tennis has been waiting in some way. Of course, Djokovic and Nadal are you know, five years and six years younger than Federer, but the dominance seems like, you know, it's been going on for decades. So anytime, even if in a 500, you see uh, three or four front runners who are like the candidates to at least join the conversation, I think that's a good sign for ATP, even though they want the big three to stay forever. But I think at the same time, 
uh, as a tour, you're trying to market these names. And these are proven names. So I think it was a fascinating weekend. Uh, what do you think of uh, the four that were in Beijing? And did you see that coming, the top four seeds making the semis? I have to agree. I thought it was a fascinating weekend as well because I feel like we know these next-gen players like in comparison to the big three, and we don't really get to see them play each other as often in bigger stakes. So it was nice to see those guys uh, make it to the end. And I guess we shouldn't really be surprised that TM came out on top because, you know, like we're saying, he's kind of the most experienced of that bunch. He's been to those finals. He has his Master Series title. But um, it was just interesting to see him compete against Sitsipas, who's, you know, the new up-and-comer. And I don't think these two are the best on hard court. I like to see them play on other surfaces. But it's nice to see two one-handers going at it after so many people claimed that the one-hander was dying. Yeah, I think that, uh, that's kind of a, a known thing, with uh, especially Sitsipas's rise to the top of the ranking and teams, you know, been that one-hander of the new generation. So, yeah, I mean, that's a different conversation. But, yeah, uh, but I think you said something important, like these two are not the best uh, on hard courts or... I think there's something important there because I also feel Sitsipas' rise in the last two years. Clay has been the defining surface for him. I mean, he's done really well everywhere, but Clay is where I think he feels really comfortable and he moves exceptionally well to play the all-court aggressive tennis that we associate with him. So I think it was a good final to see, but at the same time, uh, Sasha Zverev has clawed his way back into the conversation, which was bound to happen. He's too good to be keep losing those kind of matches. And I think in Beijing, his double fault count went down. Uh, maybe we can attribute it to the deciding match at Labor Cup. Fine, it's not a tour match, but it was a high-stakes match with the likes of Nadal and Federer, you know, all in his ears. And, you know, it was a match to decide the, uh, the Labor Cup. So, I don't know. I mean, what do you think? You think that uh, match maybe gave Zverev a little bit of a... It cleared his mind and maybe gave his him some lost belief. Uh, of course, a lot of it is happening on the court, like his court positioning, I, I also thought, improved in Beijing. He was trying to hug the baseline, even against Tsitsipas. And when things don't go as well, he was playing some solid defense. So do you see a correlation in his win uh, in the Labor Cup and then how he's uh, already winning more matches and matches with conviction that something you didn't see with him in the earlier part of the year. Right. Um, I don't know. You know, I, I don't want to say that labor cup doesn't matter because I think that match was great for him to kind of get some more confidence in his game and to hear Federer and Nadal back him has to be priceless. You know, it's not every day you get to see two legends coach you up, but um, I think Sverov, he tends to do better around this time of year. Um, he's made the, uh, he won the ATP finals in 2018, but that was also after um, having his first labor cup experience. And it's interesting that labor cup tends to kind of give him the winning moment. You would think it would go to Federer being his event, but the past two years it's gone to uh, Sasha's bear. So, Maybe they're trying to encourage him and set him up for these big winning moments, but um, who knows? I, I think it's good to see him playing better because 
it, you could tell that the service issues are just a big mental issue. You know, it's not every day you see someone hitting 20 double faults in a match. It's especially at, you know, such a high level and rank so high as Sasha is. So, um, yeah, I'm not really sure what to make of his season, but if he can turn it around going into the ATP finals, I think that would be something good for him to build on for 2020. Yeah, when Ravi Uber was on the podcast and we discussed the possible road to London and Zverev uh, slightly sitting outside the top eight uh, uh, currently, or at least when we spoke uh, two, three weeks ago, and he said something he likes, uh, which is, again, a very fine opinion in its own. He said he likes to see players who have made their move at the majors to appear, <clears throat> excuse me, to appear in the last eight, which are the playoffs, according to me, of the tennis year. But at the same time, I'm a little old school. I know we live in the age of Nadal and Federer and Djokovic and this arms race, which is the majors races, you know, that's defining tennis is transcending it to a different level. But I still think the tour holds its own and I've always maintained that. So I really won't hold it against anyone, even if a Fonini or a Zverev, if they haven't done beyond a quarterfinal at a major, but they stack up some points and still qualify because, you know, it's from Doha to Bercy, that's how the season is. Granted, you know, in this era, majors hold more importance than ever, but I still think there's plenty of points to be earned during the tour. And no matter how you get there, if you mathematically make it, you've earned it. So uh, I think uh, th- that's my take. And, you know, what's played cannot be undone. Sasha or anyone cannot go back and win more matches in majors. They have to wait till next year, but there's still four or five important tournaments after Shanghai. And if uh, players can you know, stack up wins. Not only will they be gearing towards the berth in the ATP Tour Finals, this will also be a chance to finish the season on a high, which you can vouch for on both tours. Tennis is such a sport of momentum. You know, Sabalenka was the hardest player last year. She's gone through cycles. Uh, Felix Ojealisim made his move, but now he's so such a young guy trying to figure out the pulse of the tour, maybe some, you know, maybe the length of the tour, because we, we sometimes overanalyze. So, Momentum is key, I think. And uh, uh, let me ask you about the Zverev Sitsipas rivalry. That's kind of uh, a showpiece rivalry. They became teammates for a weekend in Labor Cup. Uh, tennis Twitter very openly follows the, the dynamic, how these two <laughs> behave towards each other. Still very young guys, but uh, and both. Both both feisty in their own way. So, what do you think of that match? If you got a glimpse of that match, uh, and were you surprised that Sitsipas after the first set was very much in control, and then Sasha started making a comeback later in the second set? Did you get any of it? Um, I didn't get to catch much of it, but like the latter half of it. But um, I wasn't too surprised that. Um, Zverev was able to come back. Uh, I, I think Sitsipas is a, a good foil for Zverev. He kind of sees him in that way, I, I feel like, from some of the comments he's made in press. So um, I think he was determined, you know, to stake out his place as he is the number one of the next gen. Um, of course, Sitsipas came out on top, but, I mean, I think it's a good it's a good rivalry to have around because I think those guys will end up pushing each other as good rivals. Yeah, I think uh, uh, unlike uh, you know the big three, which uh, 
you know, is quite harmonious now. Even the Federer and Djokovic had a, you know, kind of a rough start, but now there's a lot of respect. But I, but I, I'm totally all for it. You know, as uh, even throwing in Kyrgios and uh, these guys, you know, don't have to absolutely get along with them each other because they're going to be rivals and battling out for the biggest title. So a little bit of edge is okay. Maybe Labor Cup took some of that edge off. So uh, just for the pure tennis, I, it, you could see that, you know, that match meant a lot to both players and Sasha, you know, wasn't, you know, Sasha's never happy. You know, no player was happy losing a match, but you could see his emotions that, you know, he doesn't want to lose that match. Again, uh, maybe maybe he finds a way the next time because they both are still in the draw in Shanghai. And uh, I think they both will be playing tonight. By the time this podcast is released tomorrow, uh, we'll know the fate of either men if they advance to the quarterfinals or uh, whatnot. Uh, a similar match took place yesterday in uh, Shanghai, Bri, uh, where Sitsipas, now on the receiving end of this rivalry against, in this young rivalry against Felix Ojiali-Asim, was finally able to beat uh, him for the first time. And Matt Zemek even tweeted, Sitsipas wins a set, but then he eventually uh, won the match. So... What's your take uh, on that matchup, how it has materialized so far? It's still very early days because both are very young guys. <laughs> yes, it's interesting, though, that Felix has beaten um, Tsitsipas in, like, juniors uh, <laughs> and the ATP Tour, and that this was the first time beating him in, like, six meetings, I believe. So that was interesting because, you know, most players, they – don't really play the same in their junior days compared to their pro days. So you would think that dynamic could change, you know, but I, but it was cool to see Tsitsipas get that win. It meant a lot to him to beat uh, Felix. I know last time that he lost to Felix, it was kind of devastating for him. So uh, he's trying to finish strong in his year. And I think he's making good progress after looking kind of tired during the U S open series. Hmm. So, who are some of the guys that, you know, can challenge Djokovic? Because Djokovic clearly served, you know, a warning there last week in uh, Tokyo. And everybody's saying, yeah, Beijing draw was loaded and Novak was, you know, playing in a depleted field. But, you know, he's Novak. I don't think he has to prove anything. And he is the field. I mean, when he's playing like that. Of course, you know, it helped that some of the other names were there. But when he's playing like he played in Tokyo... I think uh, very few can stay with him on a hard court. So how do you see the remainder of the season going uh, with this uh, number one uh, ranking at stake, Djokovic and Nadal? Nadal, I don't know how much he's going to play. He's he's probably tying the knot soon. Uh, what's uh, uh, h- How do you see uh, this remaining part of 2019 to fall for the number one ranking between those two guys? And uh, who can really stand up to Novak in the remainder of the season? Well, I'll start with the number one battle since that's a little more uh, cut and dry. But I think the number one ranking is Novak's to lose. Um, I think he should hold on to it. But the Shanghai draw is pretty tricky. I mean, he's got Isner coming up. Then he's got Stefanos that we've been talking about. And um, he's also got Medvedev looming as a potential semifinalist. And then he could play Federer or Zverev in the final. Uh, It's a... It's not exactly the easiest Masters 1000 who will play this year, but um, I still see him coming out on top. I would be surprised, I think, if he lost to lost in Shanghai, but this is really pivotal for the number one race because um, I think Novak would lose a good bit of points if he loses early and Rafa's kind of 
right there knocking on the door. But like you said, Nadal isn't expected to play anything until Paris, I believe, and then the World Tour Finals. Um, so, And that's due to his wedding, of course, that's coming up in a couple of weeks. And he also had a wrist thing that he was dealing with in uh, the Labor Cup. But I think it's mostly his wedding that's keeping him out right now. Yeah. No, I think Medvedev, uh, like you pointed out, could be a good test because he's, uh, you know, gotten the better of Novak in Cincinnati, and then they also played earlier in the year. So this this is a guy who can hang with, uh, with uh, you know, Novak and even the other two uh, big three members. So he's definitely uh, a guy that everybody's talking about, and he's already done so well at the U.S. Open, making so many finals and winning in Russia. Took a couple of weeks off, and now he's back in Shanghai. Uh, he's going to be up against Pospisil tonight. Uh, again, uh, we'll find the result uh, uh, tomorrow when the podcast will be released. So, interesting you said, you know, this is a, kind of a very tough draw compared to what Novak went through last week. Uh, and I agree with you that Novak remains a man to beat in every match he's playing on hard courts if he's healthy. Uh, but you know, two back-to-back tournaments in a row, that's Djokovic. That's something Djokovic has done probably many times in his career. So I think that's that's where you know not spending too much energy last week in Tokyo is going to help him as he prepares for this tough stretch where he could run into you know Sitsipas and then Medvedev and possibly Federer or Zverev later on. Yes, I agree. Um, he's he's definitely the champion to beat, but we'll have to see what happens. Uh, I think this is probably the most interesting Masters 1000 we've had this late in the season in a while, just regarding ranking and also the potential matchup. So I'm excited to see how it plays out. Yeah, this is really looking good for now. So let's talk about another match that uh, was talk of uh, the tennis Twitter or tennis world yesterday that in- involved the mercurial uh, Fabio Fonini and Andy Murray, you know, who is trying to come back to his uh, old self. And he's he- he's looked pretty good in the last few weeks. So did you see what transpired in that match? Did you catch highlights? Uh, and if you have, just uh, fill in here with the audience. And what's your take on, you know, that duel from yesterday? So, like you said, the Asian uh, time difference is just very hard on us on the Eastern time coast. So I caught highlights of it. Um, One of my friends actually tweeted and told me about it because I thought it was just like a routine Andy Fabio match. And then I was like, oh, uh, they had some words. So apparently Andy went to hit a volley at one point in the match and Fabio kind of made a noise before Andy had either hit the ball or the ball had, uh, you know, bounced on the other side of the court as a winner. And so he was a little peeved about that. You know, it's, it's actually against the rules. You're not supposed to call out or make any noise to distract your opponent. Um, we've actually seen umpires, um, cite players for that in the past, uh, most famously Serena Williams in uh, the 2011 U.S. Open final. But Andy did not take that kindly and eventually (laughs) was discussing with the umpire about what happened. And Fabio was trying to butt in and he told him to shut up. Mm. Yeah, I saw that uh, too, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so the shut up has kind of become like a meme and it's going all around the tennis Twitter. But um, it's just, you know, 
Andy can be grumpy. Fabio. This was the tail end, right? I believe Murray was serving for the match, if I'm not mistaken. And then Fonini broke back and won this in a decisive tiebreaker, 7-2. Oh, wow. So that's what it was. Oh, yeah, that's right. Murray did uh, serve for the match twice. So um, Andy is definitely gutted to lose this match. He was still talking about it uh, the day after he told the British press that he... He hates that he lost that match when he had two chances to win, and he's very disappointed, and he's just annoyed because, you know, Fabio tries to use confrontation as a motivational tactic, according to Murray. So uh, it was just interesting to see that little dust up because we haven't really had uh, an animated Murray in his comeback, and it seems like this uh, tournament in Shanghai, he was kind of feeling himself feeling more like himself on court in all ways. Yeah, I've seen just the highlights and uh, followed, of course, uh, people uh, all over on tennis Twitter and uh, some of the journalists are commenting on the levels of Murray. And Murray has looked good, I think, by many, according to many in the last couple of weeks. He's been starting slow, but then he's been fighting his way back uh, in these matches. So I think, yeah, this is something that bodes well for him, provided, you know, this uh, doesn't have any... Uh, further effects, you know, to his health and his uh, his body. But yeah, uh, tennis-wise, I think he's 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 clawing his way back. And uh, who knows by Australia time, he he could be a guy that you know none of the top guys would want to play because that's the kind of tennis. Uh, at least my reading and some of the tweets and watching the highlights seems like he's uh, he's hitting the ball really well, moving well, not favoring any side. So, yeah, so. Yeah, and most surprisingly is that he hasn't really had to change his game up any in this comeback. You know, you would think with a kind of resurfaced hip that he wouldn't be able to defend as much as he can, but he's playing like normal. He's not really net rushing or anything like that that we've kind of seen from players that have been hindered or had a major injury and had to come back. So it's really good signs for him. I'm completely shocked. I, I did not think he would come back this well so it's it's very encouraging to see and hopeful for future tennis players who may have this injury Hmm. and before we switch to the women's side of the action uh, let's get your views on your u.s open experience when you finally got to see federer for the first time and you tweeted (laughs) about it so uh, (laughs) fill us in on how that experience was even though uh, i'll let you finish that (laughs) (laughs) This was the first time. <laughs> yes, yeah, so Sakov's leaving it even though because I am a I'm a big Nadal fan. He's my I, favorite player. I, I didn't go there. I mean, you were going there yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be honest. Uh, he's been my favorite player. He's one of the guys that got me into men's tennis as uh, seriously. So it was kind of great to see his foil in person because I've gone to a few tennis tournaments, but never any that had Federer. Um, there or playing while I was there. So it was interesting to see. Uh, I didn't get to see much of him play, but he lived up to the hype. You know, he's definitely pretty quick out there. Uh, so my, me used to watching Rafa matches, I was like, wait, this, this is flying by. But uh, <laughs> it was nice to see him in person for once. I can check that off my bucket list. You were there last year, right? When he lost to Kokinakis in Miami, but you were probably at a different court. Oh, yes. Ironically, I was there when he lost to Kokonakis in Miami, but I was not in the stadium. It was ridiculously hot that day, 
And I had one of my friends who was in the stadium said like, yeah, it's almost too hot to be in the stadium because it was packed and it was high temperatures and humidity. So I actually saw it kind of like in the viewing area where you can kind of sit down Mm -hmm. in between the outer courts. And so it was I think it was more fun for me to see all the reactions of the people sitting outside and watching it on the green screen than it was being in the actual <laughs> yeah, I was in the press. Uh, I, I was watching the conclusion of the match from the press box. So, yeah, that was a yeah, that was a short stay in Miami last year. Yeah, for Roger. So, <laughs> so yeah, that was your you know uh, Roger Federer experience at the U.S. Open. So let's talk about uh, uh, the healthy rivalry that's shaping up on the WTA side. Uh, Serena Williams has been you know uh, the big uh, player compared to the big three on the on the men's side, but now. We have this younger version of uh, possible, you know, big three of the women's uh, with Andrescu, Osaka, and Ashbardi, who's slightly older. But uh, what, what's your thought on, you know, how these three names have come uh, come up in the last year or so? And now in Beijing, uh, was it last week in Beijing or where where, where we had some great matches or? Um. Probably uh, Singapore. Were we still in Singapore then? I'm not sure where you're thinking. But, um, yeah, I think it's great that these rivalries have come up or are starting to potentially happen. Um, we've kind of had like a drought, a rivalry drought in the WTA since um, Vika and Serena kind of stopped battling back in 2013 and 2015. So it's nice to see these players start playing each other regularly because, like, Andrescu, um, her year has been insanely uh, fast. You know, she's piloted to the top of the rankings. But um, she's also been injured a lot, so we haven't got to see her play. Osaka, she's been number one. Um, Ash Barty, they've both been number one, but we haven't really gotten to see them face off too much this year. So it was nice to see all that come to fruition in Beijing, it, Beijing was really just kind of like a future of tennis showcase, really. And it was fun to see these ladies battle. Um, it's nice to see Osaka kind of steal herself and kind of put her foot down and say like, hey, I see these challengers, but don't forget about me a little bit. You know, she's kind of had a, I wouldn't say a bad summer, but, you know, once you went to slams, the expectations rise. So um, it was just kind of nice to see her kind of try and dominate this Asian swing so far. And who knows? Like, hopefully all of these players will show up in Shenzhen and it could be an incredible event for the WTA in their new location. I think you're on to something, what you just said, and uh, it just resonates with me. And I'm guilty of it as many tennis fans or many tennis writers or pundits because we try to overanalyze and most of it is coming because we care for the sport we are vested we are watching but you just said it i mean osaka has won two majors and she's so very young and all of a sudden she had to prove herself for what why she has to prove herself again she has years you know ahead and such a glorious future if she stays healthy but we have this tendency if someone doesn't win for a few months you know we have this report card and we just start questioning and we as in anyone i mean you know sometimes it's totally coming from a fan point of view that you want your player to do well or sometimes it's just you know 
the extra critique that comes from care or just falling from the sport and it's a healthy dialogue but i think uh i'm realizing i think it's easy to be on the fence and that's why out of nowhere i've become a sasha zverev fan or supporter because everybody's on his case for the last year or so and i find myself it's happening with every player someone who doesn't win for a few months we start questioning so and on that note i think osaka you know has had some injury concern the body hasn't been fully there but yeah she she showed that she can really mix it up with anyone and uh, there's no reason for any of us to doubt because she's already won two hard court slams from last year to early this year in australia so what's your take on that bri as a fan experience that are we harsh sometimes when we just create this instant report card and say okay she or he hasn't done well in the last 4 months i expected them to be top 10 or top 5 what's going on boom they win again okay you know what they are back i mean it's kind of knee jerk but are you with me on this or do you see it differently no i totally agree i think uh we can as analyzers and fans be critical um we're always in search of more you know it's kind of like we think it's easy for these athletes to just kind of go out there and turn it on when it's when it's all a process you know um so i i think sometimes we can even look at the men's tour and the women's tour differently because um you know we think about serena and the narrative has been back has been since she's come back it's like why isn't she won 24 yet and it's like well she's got 23 that's pretty incredible you know and we compare that to someone like federer who we're just like we see every win as a bonus for him and and for nadal kind of we're getting to that point as well and even with djokovic so um it's just interesting to see how we view these players as they go about their careers because um there's always more to be captured and there's always another record out there that could be broken but i think we have to realize that these players are they're human you know things go on in their lives you know like sasha's fair of his had a lot going on with his his agent that's kind of been affecting his tennis or Osaka even said she wasn't happy for two months on the court you know or however long after she won her second major you know and you would think these these people would be on top of the world with what they're accomplishing but everyone has their pressures everyone has um their journey and so it's just you know I think we can all cut these players some slack we can cut ourselves some slack when we talk about tennis uh Uh, yeah. Absolutely. So let's uh, let's uh, <laughs> dig a little deeper into this. Uh, these three players. So which matchup excites you more as a fan out of these three? Is it Bardi versus Andrescu, Bardi versus Osaka, or Osaka versus Andrescu? Mm, I would say Osaka Andrescu right now would have to be the most exciting, um, just because we both seen them win the U.S. Open. They both have won hard court slams this year. they play a different kind of style you know um it's just it's just more star power i feel like no offense to ash barty but um her game is more understated you know you can kind of overlook her gifts a little bit but she's also a great competitor and it's great to see her at the top as well because she brings slice she brings doubles experience you know she brings someone who's left the tour and come back and reached the highest point so Um there are a lot of great narratives. You can't really go wrong uh, with the WTA kind of mini 3 right now as we can call them. So, um yeah, I just hope they continue to develop and continue to play more cuz 
even outside of those three, there's still Spitalina, there's still Sloan Stevens, there's still um, Kvitova, there's still Kiki Burtons. There's a lot of players out there who are in the running. So it's just exciting to see what what's going to happen. I mean, there's Serena out there still. <laughs> and Pliskova at number two. I mean, right. Uh, let's not forget her. So you think, uh, I'm just looking at the rankings, Ash Marty coming into this week is at 7,000 points and she's almost 1,000 points ahead of Karolina Pliskova, who's number two. You think with the amount of tennis left, is this a lock to see Ash Marty finish the year as number one? Uh, can Osaka, of course, there's you know the year in championships. You know, Osaka is not too far behind at 56. 100 points. Uh, I, I mean, not to throw all the numbers at you, but uh, you think it's a foregone conclusion or you think Naomi Osaka or the number one ranking can change hands by the time the year is done and dusted with? Hmm. Um, I think it could potentially come down to Shenzhen, whatever happens there with how close this race is. Um, I'm not sure of the top three schedules really before the WTA finals, but... I mean, it's it's definitely going to be close. I mean, Osaka's surging. Ash Barty's playing well, too. And Pliskova, she's, like you said, she's still hanging in there. So it's really just about who can come out on top in these next couple of weeks. Like, it's it's interesting how both of the tour's finals could be pivotal in a number one race this year. Absolutely. You expect Serena to play the remainder of the year? Has it been official? or? Uh... I do I do not expect her to play anything else. Um, I know that she will potentially qualify for the WTA finals, I think. Well, actually, I'm looking at the list right now. She's just pushed out at number nine by Kiki Burtons. So I don't think we have to worry about her playing anymore this year. Oh. And uh, as, a, as a fan, as someone who follows a career, you think that's the best move? I mean, take a couple months off, get ready for the offseason, and then come back uh, in full force? Uh- um, yes, I, I know everyone's saying they would like to see her play more. They would like to see her potentially play the WTA finals. But honestly, I think right now Serena knows what's best. I mean, she's she's doing things right. She's making finals. It's just that last little hurdle at the end. So I think she just needs to go home, get healthy, and kind of come back like she did at the Australian Open this year. I mean, she looked pretty good there until a freak ankle roll and some foot faults happen. So um, I think she's doing the right thing for herself. Yeah, I think this varies because uh, we often get confused into like player scheduling. We often compare and ask some of the younger guys on tour to schedule like Federer and schedule like Djokovic and even Nadal, you know, like all these three guys are big rivals. Nadal has scheduled differently than Federer. A lot of time Nadal fans say, hey, why don't he schedule like Federer? I mean, their bodies, their games are different. Some games are more about repetition. Some game more about getting matches. And even as good Federer is, this year I think it came from his camp that he has to play more matches. And that's why he played the French coming into Wimbledon because that gave him the ability to rally more and be more match tough. So I think even these players, they're finding more about themselves every year, I figure, as they extend their careers. And yeah, what works for A may not work for B. And sometimes it works for you know all of them. And sometimes... The case is different. So, yeah, so I think it's going to be interesting what Serena does for the off-season and when she's back in Australia. Uh, you know, in the past, she hasn't needed a lot of matches sometimes. So, yeah, it's going to be an interesting watch when the next season rolls around and if she does actually come back uh, not playing any match after the U.S. Open. 
Yes, and it'll be interesting to see, because like you were saying about um, the scheduling, the interesting part is that Serena's played 11 tournaments this year, and Federer, you know, he's he's not far off. Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic actually are actually really close this year in the amount of tournaments played by only playing 13. Um, Federer's at 12. So um, you can kind of see how, as father time creeps up, that they are scheduling themselves smarter, and they're and they're making the best of their opportunities still. Yeah, I think it's most sport, uh, if you look at most athletes around the world, the prime athletes are the players that are dominating sports, just gotten older. Uh, the, the best players are playing a lot longer into their mid-30s or even late-30s, and yeah, that's no exception. You know, they, they train better, they have the wisdom of knowing their limits, and of course there's so much information out there to extend their glorious peak. So, yeah. So, Brie, let's uh, conclude this uh, conversation. Uh, I'll just put you on the spot like I did Ravi but If you can scroll the ATP Tour uh, race to London, who's going to make it according to you? And then we can, of course, exchange notes when the actual tournament takes place. Who are the eight that's going to be there? Okay. So, we've got Djokovic, of course, Nadal, Federer, um, Medvedev is for sure going to be there. Tim, Tsitsipas, um, seven and eight are going to be the tricky ones. Um, I I think it's just going to be RBA and Zverev sneaking in. Mm-hmm. I would like to see Berrettini maybe get in there and and Zverev kind of over RBA. And I like RBA, but I just I just would like to see some younger guys in there with veteran Nadal and Djokovic. Absolutely, Fabio Fognini is not too far, but let's see how. Shanghai plays out for him. He goes against Karen Hachanov again uh, two weeks in a row in China. So let's see. He needs to make a big splash if he needs to if he has to stay in contention. Because I think in, during indoor season, I think big servers like Zverev and Berrettini might have a little more leverage as the tour moves indoor. Oh, yes. And it would be nice to see Monfils, you know, uh, qualify. He's at 12 right now, but I don't see it happening. That would be nice. Though. He's actually at 11 because Nishikori is, I think, kind of done for the season. That's what I heard, right? Oh, that, that's right. That's right. So, so yeah, you never know. I mean, what how this remaining five, six tournaments play out, like you said, is pretty interesting. After number six, uh, the next two spots are really up for grabs. So on that note, uh, let me thank you for coming on. I know it's a work night, but you care about the podcast. You care about talk, talking tennis. It was enjoyable. Let's do this again sometime very soon. And uh, thanks yes, everyone. For sure. Thanks everyone who listens to this podcast. Keep supporting and drop in reviews and share with your friends and even throw in any negative feedback on how we can improve. We'll be back with another episode next week. This is Sakib signing off with Ray. Talk to you guys later. Bye for now. Bye.